Welcome everybody to the third episode of the Scumtown Podcast. I'm your host Vinny Beetle, and today we have a very interesting topic to talk about. Um, first off, I do want to thank all the people that have listened so far, whether you're enjoying the podcast. We've only had two episodes and we have reached exactly 1,000 downloads. So uh, thank you guys for listening and uh, hope you guys enjoy this podcast. Um, today's episode is about friendship and what are some of the negative things that can happen when you work with the people that you are friends with or if you're working with somebody and then you become friends and then things change along the way. Um, specifically, I'm speaking about somebody who was for a few years my best friend and pretty much like family, I would call a brother. He's also a fellow comedian. His name's Elazar Guzman. Elazar is one of those kind of kids that I feel like when I was growing up, we joke around a lot more off stage than we relate to each other and how we perform on stage. And we just enjoy being around each other. I met him in 2016, I believe, 2016, 2017 time somewhere as I was producing shows and working in Atlantic City. And I had heard in Atlantic City about this kid, Elazar, uh, from one of the guys who runs a club there, was saying, you don't want to be like Elazar Guzman. And he was kind of joking on him a lot. And that name just kind of stuck with me. And I guess after hearing this guy who runs a seven-day-a-week comedy club in Atlantic City trash on this kid, I was curious to get to know him and see kind of what he was about and see if he was funny or not or what the deal was, why this guy, Matt, uh, in Atlantic City didn't like him. And so I I was running this room uh, in White. It was called the White Plains Hotel, and or was it what was it called White Sands? Sorry, and it was in um, Point Pleasant, New Jersey. It was on the beach. It was like a family resort area, and they had this. It was a five star res, uh, you know resort, and they had this big ballroom that they wanted to do comedy shows on Tuesday night. So on my way from Connecticut to Atlantic City every week, I would shoot down on Tuesday to do this show that didn't have any kind of fan following, um, no history really of doing comedy shows other than a couple times, and they wanted this place you know, filled every week. And they have a boardwalk that a bunch of people, especially in the summertime, thousands of people walk along this boardwalk. And like Atlantic City, we sell tickets on the boardwalk and kind of bark people into shows that way. And But in this area, it was very family-friendly, and it just wasn't going to work to sell tickets. So I knew that we had to do a show that we gave away free tickets to people and we would spend, uh, you know, I would drive from Connecticut about three hours every Tuesday and spend the day there giving away free tickets uh, on at this resort area. And then at night we would have a show. Well, I booked another comedian from New Jersey to come down and help me that I had known previously and that said he wanted to work and he brought down Elazar with him. And he couldn't make it one week, and Elazar the next week was the only comedian there. And I finally got to meet Elazar. Immediately working with Elazar, one of my favorite things about him was that not only was he hysterical on stage, but he was very humble. And I thought that out of a lot of New Jersey comedians that i seen, you know, this kid was funny. And I don't think he really even knew how funny he was. And on top of that, he worked really hard. And in the comedy business, that's rare. Comedians don't want to work. That's like 
the number one thing that I know about comics is that they hate working and any opportunity that they have to just get a free payday and tell jokes for money they're going to do. But as I started comedy when I was 17 years old, I wasn't getting a lot of paid gigs, so I started coming up with ways to run shows and make money on my own. We had a little budget from this hotel, but it wasn't anything too crazy. It certainly covered the travel and food for the comics and uh, that kind of stuff, but we needed to earn money through you know, people tipping us, actually. And some nights we would make good money and other nights we didn't, you know, but really it was more for fun and experience. I made more money in Atlantic city and I just, you know, LSR was like a year into comedy and I, I just figured for us too, we were the ones there specifically every single week. It was good for us. And we brought other comics on along the way. That summer was awesome. We did shows every Tuesday at one point in like just a six hour period, me and Elazar got maybe close to a hundred people that didn't even know about the show in the morning by 7, 38 o'clock on 4th of July, they were in there watching the show. And so we kind of have this pop-up comedy club thing going on, and we both are getting along. And uh, fast forward a little bit to him wanting to produce a show uh, at Broadway Comedy Club in New York City. And he wanted to put on the show, and he didn't have any money to pay a headliner at first. He didn't have any anything. And so I told him I would help him put on the show, but he needed to put up you know, at least $150 because... If you're not going to cover half the budget of the show, then you have no real stake in the game and you're not going to really want to work hard to make any money. You know, and I'm speaking from a producer standpoint, you're just going to want to show up and have a good time. So I, I'd worked with comedians who were lazy and I, I just didn't want to do that anymore. And he committed <coughs> and he sent $150 and boom, he was in and we and we we did this show. And, you know, it didn't make a ton of money, you know, and we thought to ourselves, we can keep doing this. And so we did, and we and we kept working together on different things, and it started to grow gradually into just doing shows wherever we can find a gig, and uh, we did well. You know, we started getting you know good crowds in in the audience, and we went to Tennessee, and we did New York, and we did Connecticut, and we did New Jersey, and we did Pennsylvania, and we're traveling all around doing these shows. And you know, he's doing a lot of the shows, but there's a lot of them where I'm putting these shows together. And I'm, you know, paying for them to be produced. I'm, I'm doing everything. And, you know, some of them, we didn't make a lot of money. So I would always make sure with Elazar that all of his travel was always covered wherever we went. If he was taking a train to me, if he was taking a bus to me, uh, it didn't matter. If we were driving him and paying for all the gas and the tolls, like as long as he got to where he had to go, that was a start. And then I always made sure he was, I mean, sometimes the kid didn't have the right clothes to wear. We always made sure he had clothes. We always made sure that he had food. We always made sure that he liked to drink beer, that he had beer and weed to smoke. The kids smoked more weed with me than anybody imaginable. He just became my brother. He was the only comedian to ever sleep at my house. I have a, a small daughter and a, my wife obviously here, and we don't want comedians hanging around the house and just kind of bumming it. But Elazar was somebody that we brought in as family, and I loved the kid for a long, long time. He was like my best friend. Funniest kid I ever met. Um, we ended up kind of working together on in a way that I was handling a lot of business stuff, and comedians just didn't communicate that business language to me very well. And what I was saying didn't resonate with them. So he was somebody that I felt like could kind of translate, you know, what we're trying to do as from a struggling comedian standpoint. I mean, here this kid's making YouTube videos sitting in the woods somewhere, like 
you know, he's homeless and shit. And so obviously if he starts making money, people are going to see like, damn, this kid's doing pretty good. Maybe if I work hard, you know, good shit can happen for me. And so shit kind of gets sour, I guess, because he didn't really understand that concept of hard work. His kind of hard work was like walking around in the hot sun all day, passing out flyers to a show, which I respect so much, but there's a different level of thinking when it comes to wanting to plan a tour or a show or promote something and be successful at it, which he obviously has had some success, you know, doing it on his own. But he's had to work, work the hard way to do that, you know. I work for the Stress Factory in Connecticut and try to help them open their club, and they don't want to pay me the money that they're supposed to pay me. And after three and a half weeks, I get nothing, and I'm out of there. And so a few weeks later, they offer Elazar his birthday show in New Jersey to do at the Stress Factory, and he says yes and promotes the hell out of this Tuesday night and gets 100 people to come pay $20, but they kept all the money, the Stress Factory, and they gave the kid like $80. So he did $2,000 in sales, you get $80. And so he thought he would always learn better on his own, not working with me. But here, lo and behold, if he had me there, this kid would have walked out $1,500. And so sure, the spad moral of that story is, well, Vinny, you know, what would you have done with the extra 500 Split it with the club. I make 250 he makes 250 The point is, is that I know how to handle business better than most comedians do. So you're going to make more working with me than you did working by yourself. And I tried to explain that to him. And at that point, he's just so frustrated from getting screwed over. And so I come to him uh, with this idea of going to Tennessee uh, to do our tourism, you know, kind of comedy pop-up production there because I'd been there when I was a kid and a teenager and I seen how many people would be there and that it was easy to do a show and we filmed the whole thing. I still have the footage that's unreleased and we went to Tennessee and did these shows. We popped up the first day in Gatlinburg, Tennessee and, you know, five hours into promoting, we had given away and sold like 65 tickets and we'd sold a lot of them too. And, you know, we had a great show the first night it was a Sunday and we come back the next night and we do the same thing. And then the owner of the club, you know, says they want, uh, now we had just made a deal for them to take the bar, but they had seen how well we were doing and said that they wanted to uh, get $3,000 for the next eight nights we were supposed to be there. We had a, a friend give us a house for the week, so there's about six comedians and my wife and all these people there to kind of make these shows happen and work this thing, and uh, you know, it kind of fell apart from there. And the Knoxville community came together and they gave us a bunch of shows, and we traveled around Knoxville and West Knoxville to different areas and did these shows with the comedians in Tennessee, and they took care of us, and it was a really awesome experience. But it was a failure financially, and that's when I sat down with Rodney Norman, who was on episode one. Uh, of this podcast where it's kind of blurry and you can't really hear them. And we were talking about, you know, how I have my hand in all these different things and how I would find more success just sticking to one place and doing working hard at something. And so I decided to go back to Connecticut and find a place to open a comedy club. And Elazar was always in my mind to do that because he had been the guy that worked so hard to get me to that level of thinking where I was like, I don't want to lose this kid. So you know, we have all these other comedians and people that work for us. And a lot of these shows were making a lot of money. Some of them weren't. And we were heading into a point where we could have, you know, really done well if things had worked out. But in life, sometimes you, you know, make the wrong decisions. And that's what I did. And it didn't work out. Here we get to the meat of the story. I end up finding a place in South Windsor, Connecticut that's an old 
older-ish arcade, and they have a ton of games in there for kids. They have basketball courts. It's called Nomads, and they used to run comedy open mics there, but they have three banquet rooms that nobody uses, and one of them we turned into a small comedy club. We kept the big banquet room in case we had an idea of bringing in somebody to do a bigger show. We were doing shows there multiple times a week, still doing shows on the road. Things are going great. Um, and I just kind of get an epiphany to, to want to bring in a celebrity to try to see if we could get things to the next level. It was a Tuesday. I remember it very vividly. I probably had $20 in my checking account and I was playing NBA 2K on my TV and I had tweeted at TJ Miller to come do a comedy show with me in Connecticut because I thought that he would be good for my club. And he was in at Bananas in New Jersey all weekend, except for Sunday. And it was only five days away, but I told him if he came, I would give him $2,000. And, you know, we would just have a kick-ass time and I would be able to get the show together. While I was playing NBA 2K, I got a message on Facebook from TJ Miller and I kind of like, my jaws dropped and I was like, oh my God, like, what the fuck is, is this, you know, is this real or is this somebody fucking with me? And I click on it and it's TJ Miller. And he says, if you could really do the show, bring me a thousand dollars to Manhattan. And if you can do that by five o'clock and believe me at five Oh one, I'm going for an interview for a movie I'm doing. If you're, if you're there before five, uh, here's the address, yada, 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 New York city, bring a thousand dollars. I didn't have any money and I didn't want to tell this guy no. And so I told TJ Miller, yes, I'll be there at 5 o'clock. I'm in Connecticut. It's like 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. And I get a friend in Rhode Island um, to front me $1,000 so I could go to New York City and meet TJ Miller to hopefully change the course of what we're doing. Because at this point, we're just going into cities with flyers and saying, hey, I'm a comedian. You want to come to the show tonight? And no ticket sales are happening. And the shows that I am selling tickets to in the areas where I have a lot of people I'm using to pay back people that are helping to start the business. And we're just going backwards before we're getting started. And I find this arcade nomads. I turn it into a comedy club. Um, I didn't sign a lease with nomads because they didn't want to, they wanted to see how it would work, how it would build. And I, I assured them that I really didn't plan on going anywhere that I would work very hard to make it happen. And I had all these plans to bring celebrities in and, and have big shows and so they were like, yeah, fuck yeah, let's do it. So we, I, I go to Rhode Island, I get the $1,000. By the time I make it to New York City, I only had $950 left because I had to pay tolls and gas. And I'm doing this just to meet this guy. And I get there at 445. It's pouring rain. And I pull up to a Japanese barbecue um, place. I forget the name of it. It's in New York City. And I walk in and the entire restaurant is closed off. And TJ Miller's sitting there. And he gets up and Beatle, he starts yelling my name. And he does his whole you know, HPO Silicon Valley act. And he's got a whole table full of food and he sits me down and he's, he wants to hear my story and boom, 45 minutes. I'm talking about a bunch of ideas I have and shit I have in my head. And this guy's like loving it. And he tells me he'll do the show. He'll keep the money I have now. I pay the rest of the night of, and, and we're on to have the show in five days. I work my ass off for five days, 20 hours a day to make sure that we sold that show out. And we did. $30 a ticket, 175 people, amazing night. I mean, it was great. You know, Elazar's pissed at me from the get-go because he's not on the show with TJ Miller. Well, I couldn't. I had a few guys that had helped put up money for TJ that I had to put on the show, as well as people that sold a bunch of tickets in five days that Elazar just couldn't do in Connecticut. And I said, dude, like, you know, I'll get you on the next one. 
And so he was like really frustrated about that. And I understood it, I guess, because he's my number one guy. But I don't really have room to just be, you know, I only have a certain amount of time. And I didn't have a feature act. I was just throwing on comedians that were helping me get it together. It was a last minute thing. Show's great. You know, everything's good. And boom, we're off and running. Then I get a phone call to have Artie Lang at the club. And everybody's telling me Artie Lang isn't going to show up. Artie Lang isn't going to show up. Well, I paid him $6,000 for two days for him and Bob Levy to show up, and they showed up. And both nights were packed crowds, great shows. Um, really thought that that club was going to be around for a long time at that point. Just because TJ Miller and Artie Lang are not B-list comedians in comedy clubs, those are top guys that you would only see at like a Stress Factory or a Comics at Mohegan Sun or an Improv or something like that. And here they are coming to the back of an arcade you know, to a, a banquet room to perform for a bunch of people that a, a, a dude's putting, a comedian's putting together with his friends. So it was really something I thought was amazing. And we were still doing other shows other days of the week. And so LSR had his hand in a lot of things. And when we brought Artie in, LSR was on the shows. He was on both of them. I didn't only put Artie on those shows there. I started working with Artie as his part-time assistant. And I put him on shows in Long Island, in Yonkers. We did shows just pretty much in Connecticut, anywhere that I could put Artie Lang on stage, I was doing it with me, and the shows were really good, and some of them were Artie's gigs himself, and Elazar's on the shows, and not only him, but other comedians that now, if you listen to podcasts, will talk about me being one of the worst people they've ever met in the world, you know, and these people are living their dream with Artie Lang on stage, even Artie joked about it, he said, Vinny must be at a red light, Stop it and say, hey, you do comedy, you want to open for Artie? Because Artie was doing things last minute. And so I had to put stuff together in four, five, six days. So I was giving all kinds of comedians chances to do that. You know, so Artie um, goes through some legal stuff and he ends up busy for a while and not really on the comedy scene. And I get a call immediately right after that to go work with Bam Margera and go work with Bam and his team in Detroit for a Comic-Con in which he was doing a comedy show afterwards, which they never done before. Live Nation had sold 400 tickets, and they needed a comedian, and they heard I had worked with um, Artie Lang, and they had met some um, other comedians that knew me, and they said that this would be a good fit. So I drove to Detroit, and I told Elzar I couldn't bring you there, but I got you another time. So I always felt like he trusted me on that end, because as soon as I started doing shows with Bam in Connecticut and in Yonkers and in New York City and in Pennsylvania and in every other place that we would go, I made sure Elazar was on the show. I would make sure no matter what, Elazar was on the show. You know, not only that, Elazar got to pretty much live at Castle Bam with me for a good month period. Okay, and not to dig too much into the Bam thing, but at that time I had a lot of pressure on me to work with Bam and try to make a tour happen because that's what him and his manager, and not only his manager, his wife, and everybody around him at the time was telling me that he wanted. You know, so I'm trying to do that and help him save his little castle party, which I've talked about in other podcasts. But as far as how this thing shaped out with Elazar, we still had responsibilities for. Elazar's room at RTB in New Jersey that he runs. We still had responsibilities with Nomads back in Connecticut. It was kind of shaky because I'd spent so much time working on the road with Artie and Bam and trying to make things happen. 
And, uh, you know, we did the Come Town podcast, and that was terrible at first. I thought my life was over with all the Come Town fans pretty much coming for my neck, telling me they're, you know, that I'm a loser, my life is over, and I'm never going to work again. And I'm sitting here laughing, thinking that any exposure is good exposure. And those are sitting on my couch, uh, pretty much s- sleeping from the night before and saying, oh my God, man, what are you going to do about this? And just kind of freaking me out. And I was just like, dude. I don't know, man. Just stay positive. Like it's better than no exposure, I guess. There's thousands and thousands of people talking about it, so I could be voted the worst guest in podcast history. But maybe there'll be a time where I get on again, is what I told him. And maybe that time will be when I'm better and people could see a different side of me that actually makes them laugh. And he really didn't kind of go with that at that point when he seen all the Cumtown fans on Reddit like coming for my neck. This kid felt like, damn, I don't want to fuck with this kid really anymore. And at that time, you know, when the comedy club was falling apart, you had people coming out of the woodwork saying they wanted their money back for investing in the club. And, you know, of course, at that point, he's sitting there saying, oh, my God, you know, Vinny's this and Vinny, it's not me. It, it, we were supposed to start a nomads in New Jersey and it's Vinny doing it and it's not me. Like he didn't own anything. He was OK. That's what happens when people don't have their own money in your business is they're just sitting there kind of looking out for themselves. You know, and that's where I feel that he was in the wrong in, in the situation that we're going to talk about. Because I had done so much for this kid. I mean, let's not even talk about all the money that he was paid working for me. Let's talk about situations where he's throwing shows at the Comedy Cove at Scotty's in Springfield, New Jersey. And he doesn't have enough money to pay the deposit for the night for the room. It's $150 for him to throw a show there where he's bringing patrons who would not normally be there on an off night to eat and drink the beverages in the club. Let me tell you something. Any new comedian that's throwing a show in a club should not have to pay the club to use the club. Any comedy club during the week doesn't have anybody walking in those doors. Comedy is a kind of genre that people spend a good once a month, maybe once every two months going to see a show, if that, if they're a fan of stand-up comedy. So I told Elazar, what's the, oh, the guy Gene, he's a good guy, let me call him and I'll talk to him about your situation at the Comedy Club. So I call Gene Nagel, who owns the Comedy Cove, and I say, Gene, listen, Elazar's got 25 people coming to this show tonight. I think it was a Tuesday night comedy show. Now, if he's got 25 people coming to this club, and he doesn't have $150 to pay you before the show starts, are you going to tell these 25 people to go home and not enjoy the show and make your business look bad? And Gene said, well, of course not. And I said, okay, well, then let him have the show because he doesn't have the money. And I'm not even on the show. I'm in Connecticut, but he does so much for me and works so hard for me. I don't want to see the kid all upset. He was screwed over by the stress factor. He's not comfortable working with clubs. Just give him the night. And Gene says, I really can't do that. And he's kind of stickler. So I said, listen, I'll pay $100 of his deposit for the room. How much is the room? He said, well, normally it's $150. But now that we're dealing with this, it's going to be $200. So I said, look, I'm going to send you $100. I'm not on this show. Elazar works hard for me. I love the kid. I'm going to send you $100. Do the show and and go ahead and give Elazar the nod to pay you the other $100 out of ticket sales. And if Elazar decides, 
you know, that he can't pay the money at the end. will give me a call and we'll work it out. Well, of course, Elazar didn't have enough people at the show. And Gene called me the next day and asked me for the other $100. And I said, Gene, I said, we'll work it out. I'll do a show for you. I'll help you promote your club. There's other ways to make that money. But if you think I wasn't even there, I'm not the producer of the show, that I owe you money. You're out of your fucking mind. And this guy, Gene, went on telling people for months that I owed him $100. And maybe I shouldn't have put my nose in Elazar's business, but this kid is, like, retarded. And I, I excuse my language, but, like, I mean, who would even make a deal like that? I'm negative with the club before I even open my fucking mouth that there is a show. Pay any comedians, any equipment, whatever the hell he needs, flyers, tickets, whatever he needs to promote the show, and he didn't do it right. And that's not where it stops with this kid. It really isn't, you know? Because then he has RTB, the bar that he does these shows at in New Jersey. And I say, look, man, I'll drive to New Jersey to help you with one of your shows because I could guarantee you that if you could fit at least 20 bar stools in one area, we could turn it into a little comedy club. Dude, I went there. We set, we found comedy club chairs in the basement, about 100 of them. We set up 100 seats from the point of viewing on stage for this kid to run shows, charge a ticket price, get a good headliner, and make a living in New Jersey right down the street from his house. And so I say, okay, we got the BAM shows going on. We'll book the Reverend Bob Levy. And let me tell you something about Bob Levy. One of the funniest guys I ever met in my life, but he is the biggest closet scumbag I've ever met, meaning he's the kind of guy to talk about positivity and how he's friends with everybody and loves everybody. But if you turn on him or if something goes wrong with something that has to do with him, he's going to come at you like a pro wrestler from the 80s. So I already knew that this guy was a fucking headache to deal with, you know, and I got Elazar running the show at RTB with Bob, so this is what I go and do. I can't deal with any of this. I'm dealing with one of Bam's four canceled tours in 2019 that he somehow thinks he needs to do. And and I'm over here getting sucked in because I'm feeling like Bam's going to get me famous and change my life. I go ahead and pay Bob Levy $500 in advance for the gig. I say, listen, show up to the, the gig. I don't care if Elazar has 15 people in the bar. Perform the show. You got paid. I'll have Elazar handle the ticket sales at the door. He'll send me the money. Elazar was supposedly promoting the show for three weeks, but at Castle Bam, I catch him drunk as hell for two or three days straight. I mean, this kid really developed a drinking problem. He's going back to New Jersey at any time just to drink free beer at RTB to sleep in the fucking basement. Okay, sleep in the basement. I offered this kid a couch. He has a beautiful home that his mother and and, and stepfather loved the kid. And his mother always says, stick with Vinny. He has your back. Come home if you need anything. And this kid's going to a bar to sleep in the basement just so he could have a fucking pint and whatever else he's doing in there. I don't even give a shit about. Okay, and we do this show at RTB. Everything's paid for. So what does Elazar have to do? He's got to spread the word to all the people that he's promoted to for all the years in New Jersey to get him to come to the show. What does he do? Nothing. Gets drunk at BAMS, tries to live the life. I fucking tear his ass a new one. And I'll tell you what happened at Castle BAM. We're there mainly to shoot some stuff with BAM and promote the upcoming comedy shows to sell tickets. Bam's having a fucking nightmare with this castle party. His manager's hiding. Bam's scared. I come in and say, I've failed at a ton of shit in my career. If this fails, I'll know how to sink this ship. And if not, I could save it and look really cool. And you know what? I was up for the challenge. 
I took on this responsibility while simultaneously promoting a comedy tour for band because if the party doesn't work, then the fuck comedy tour is not going to work. That's just the way it is. Okay. Me and Elazar were there with a comedian named Rodney Norman, and we were there for some time. Rodney would leave us. Me and Elazar would stay there for some time, go back for ourselves. I would always pay for everything when it came down to food, whatever. The kid was just with us all the time. His only job was to promote this show. It was $20 a ticket. He could have sold 25 tickets. I would have got my money back. He sold zero tickets. Over 40 people came into the club to see Bob Levy. And guess what Elazar did at RTB? Didn't charge anybody. I asked him how much money he made. He said he only made two fifty back. He charged 12 people. I said, send it to me. He lied. Didn't even collect 12 tickets. Went to the owner of the bar at RTB and asked him for $250 to send me. Because he got so fucking drunk, he forgot to charge people at the door. They send me the two fifty. I don't give a fuck where it comes from. Now I just lost $250 to try to help this kid make a living. Lesson learned again. Now I'm, I'm just losing so much money with this kid. But to me, he's an investment because he works hard. Again, that first impression he gave me, all the times he said I never paid him any money, all the shit you hear on the Pizza Boy podcast, this is just two stories. I'm down $400 from the kid, okay? And that doesn't include the fat fuck eating because he's a slob just like I am. We're just going to say at, uh, at the end of the day, he fucked up. He fucked up everything between us, and I don't give a fuck anymore because – he needs to be exposed for how he really treated me toward the end, which you could do whatever you want. I fucked over people. People fuck over me. You could punch me in the face. But snitching on someone, it's just, and we'll get to it, you know. I mean, it's really fucking disgusting. I mean, I come from an Italian background where snitching is just as bad as touching someone's kid or killing somebody. I mean, it's just, you don't do it, you know. You don't snitch because karma comes around it comes around in waves and when you don't think it's gonna happen you know it's gonna happen to you and we're staying at this fucking castle with bam and you're living the life but the bottom line is you couldn't hold it together one friday i get a text from bob levy we're at bam's castle that you know he's doing a show in lancaster pennsylvania and we can go perform we're already chilling at bam's there'd be times where bam was gone for a day or two and we're like fuck it let's go so i have a rental car we drive out to lancaster and so the thing is, is that I would run out of weed pretty frequently in Pennsylvania. And so the kid that was a skater there and helped build ramps would sell me weed. But sometimes he wouldn't get back from skating in Bam's barn until like midnight. And I didn't want to go over there sometimes. So I would say, oh, they play poker late at night. I'll get my weed from them then. I ran. I had like a little bit of weed left. I smoked it with Elazar before we went to the show. We go to this show. It's in a shitty hotel. There's 10 people there. Levy's got a mess going for the people. They're friends of BAMs that came and supported me. Shout out to Headman. You fucking... This guy lives in Pennsylvania. He's like 40 years old and he's got a gigantic head. And he used to... He told BAM that he used to cater for him back in the day when they did Viva La BAM. And BAM laughed and said that they never had catering for Viva La BAM. But he appreciated Head's story and he let him stick around. I thought that was hysterical. I don't know if Head ever really realized that BAM knew that, but... Anyways, we uh, we go to this show, and it's god-awful, and we're there, and then I take over. I'm hosting the show because they don't have nothing going on. This place sucks. I mean, the worst fucking promoters in the world. The flyer looked like it was made in the paint app, and I mean, I've had some bad flyers. I mean, this thing was just fucking atrocious. Me and Elazar perform. We're about 45 minutes from Westchester, um, and this is where the story gets real. You know, we I, I get in the car after the show, say goodbye to all the comedians, it's about 11 o'clock. 
11.15. We get in the car. We finally leave at about 11.30 out of the parking lot. Now, I'm dying because I don't have weed. And when I'm driving, honestly, at that time, I didn't even care because if I did have weed, I'd be smoking it. Like, I was dying. I Sometimes I get these headaches for marijuana where I can't think about nothing but smoking weed. It could be I have the most important thing to do, the biggest celebrity in the world to meet with. And if I don't have weed, I'm not going to meet with this fucking guy. I mean, now I have my medical license and thank God because I need this shit. But at the time... That was the situation. I could remember the feeling of desperately wanting to get out of that shithole and tell Bob Levy to fuck off with his shitty comedy show and go home and meet this skater dude at the poker table and smoke some weed and gamble with some skater dudes. And fucking Elazar is telling me the same thing. Like, I don't know. This kid did this to me a few times, and I don't know why I didn't catch on, but, oh, we don't have any weed. I'm speeding to get back to BAMS to get the fucking weed. That's how much I want to go get weed. I wish I told the cops that I wanted to get weed. I'm doing 55 and a 35. I get pulled over. I pull over immediately. The cop comes up, license and registration. He gets all the information. Elazar's already shaking like a fucking goose. I couldn't even tell you why he was shaking like that. You would think he had heroin in his fucking pockets. This kid... Talked about how his real father was some drug lord in Colombia or some shit, wherever the hell his Bigfoot looking ass came from. And I would just say to myself in that moment, he's going to be good no matter what. Because I don't check him. We're comedians. Should I check him before he gets in my car? Yeah, but this kid's been with me for three years. He's worked his ass off for me. Of course I trust him. He's my best friend. Why wouldn't I trust him? The cop says, have you been drinking tonight? I said, no, absolutely not. I'm a comedian. We just came from a show. 15 minutes, I wasn't even on the road. 15 minutes that way, we're back in Lancaster. Um, I'm going toward Westchester. And at the time for Bam's Castle Party, I'm not going to lie to you guys, there was 50 state troopers parked around his property at all times. You ask anybody who was at that party, they'll tell you that. We were pulled over by a state trooper. Whether or not the guy was following me from Bam's house could be speculated as paranoia, and that's part of the reason I probably need marijuana, you know, but I just remember being in the car, and I remember driving out and being speeding a bit, seeing the lights and pulling over. And I remember having an empty jar that my one of my good friends in the military, Christian, gave me that was a um, Rick and Morty weed jar, and it was empty. My jar was completely empty, but if, if you know weed jars, if they're empty, they still kind of smell like weed. And so the guy had taken me, he said after a few minutes, he'd taken Elazar out of the car first. And he was talking to him for a good minute or two, but I was just kind of, I'd been in some legal trouble, and I was just kind of trying to stay chill. Like, I'm good. Like, I have nothing to worry about. The cop came over and he said, you know, is there anything in the car that I need to know about? And I said, officer, I said, I have nothing in this car. I said, you could check it right now. It's a rental. I have no weed. I said, I have an empty jar right here. It was right in the center council. I said, there's nothing in here. And he gets out. And he says, I appreciate the honesty. And he looks around. He finds nothing. And he goes, oh, I didn't find anything. Give me a few minutes. And they go back and talk with Elazar for a few minutes. Uh, about his situation, I guess, that was going on. And they had come over and informed me that Elazar had not only a pipe in his pocket for marijuana, but he had actually had marijuana in his pocket, like a gram of marijuana. Immediately, I wanted to kick his ass because here I am fiending for weed. Like, I am fiending for this shit, speeding back. And if this kid had just not been such a stingy piece of shit, he could have just rolled a blunt and we would have been good <laughs> on the way home and like, I'm going slow. We're fine as hell. Who cares? 
But no, he was so fucking cheap, he had to keep the weed for himself, and he got caught. In the state of Pennsylvania, any amount of possession, he had no license, they couldn't leave him there. They were arresting this kid. At first, they were going to give him a ticket. But he goes on, I'm not even going to really say. I get, I, They come over to me, and they say, Vinny, we want you to perform some field sobriety tests. And I said, why would you want to perform field sobriety tests? You told me I was just speeding and that you were going to give me a ticket. Now you're telling me you want to perform field sobriety tests. It just makes no sense. And he said, well, we just have our reasons. They wouldn't tell me why. I performed five field sobriety tests. They do the thing where they hold their finger up and you follow your eyes. I even did one more complicated where he did his finger in like a roller coaster shaped motion around my head. I mean, these guys were trying everything. I walked a straight line. I said my ABC's backwards. I passed every fucking test with flying colors. It's close to midnight. The guy's staring in my eyes, both these officers, and they can't say fucking nothing to me because they know I'm sober. I'm actually so mad. I keep telling them, like, I wish I was high. I wish. That kid held the weed. He's getting a ticket. What a fucking asshole. And they laugh a little bit. And they say, we're going to wait for a drug evaluation expert to come to the scene because we need them to test you further. They wait 20 minutes and then they find out that there's no drug evaluation expert on duty right now in Lancaster County. So what happens? They say they have to take me to the hospital and draw my blood for me. Now, I got to be honest with you guys. We're in the middle of the country. This shit is hick as hell. And I just go from taking field sobriety tests, laughing with the guy to he wants to take me to the hospital and take my blood. I immediately refuse. They refuse my refusal by saying they're just going to take me to the hospital so I could refuse there. They not only cuff me, but they strap me up in something that kind of makes it look like a, a backwards jacket, like a straight jacket. They cuff Elazar with his hands in the front of him, so they put us in the back seat of the car together, but his hands are cuffed in his lap as if he's kind of sitting more comfortable, and he goes, thanks, guys, I really appreciate it. And he's like, oh, my God, you know, what is going to happen to me? And they go, you're going to get a ticket, but we can't leave you here because we're, we're bringing him to the hospital and you don't have a license. So we can't we can't leave you here. You're getting arrested with him. Idiot. Idiot. I, I can't even tell you guys. I get the police report in the mail and his name is all over it. This kid snitched on me. The whole police report is Elazar Guzman stated that he had marijuana and that him and the driver, Vincent Beetle, were smoking it just an hour before. And at 15 minutes before, I was hosting a show at this hotel with at least, it was a shitty show, there was at least 15 witnesses. I didn't get this paperwork till I got home. Let's back up a second. We're in the car, Elazar's going to me, what is going to happen to me? I said, dude, shut the fuck up. You're going to get a ticket. Calm the fuck down. You you just got me implicated to get arrested for DUI, and they didn't arrest me at that point. They were detaining me to take my blood, which I felt was illegal as shit. And I really wanted to talk to my lawyer, but here it is, 12.15 at night. They take me to the hospital. I refuse. They let me go that night with Elazar. No bail. They let us go. Would have promised to appear back in court, but I had a DUI for refusing to give my blood. Why? Because I knew I had been smoking earlier that day, and I told the officers... I had been smoking marijuana earlier that day. I had not been smoking and driving. I wasn't impaired. My level of of tolerance to marijuana is way up there. I could smoke two joints and probably be fine, but I know that you're not supposed to smoke and drive, and I wasn't smoking and driving. They bring me to the hospital. I refuse. They let us go. We go back. 
Elazar's now texting me two weeks later asking me for a ride from Connecticut to New Jersey to pick him up to bring him to Lancaster, Pennsylvania to go to court. And I said, oh, you got your paperwork? He said, yeah. And I went in the mail and I got my paperwork. Elazar Guzman said that Vincent Beetle was smoking while driving. Elazar Guzman indicated the two were smoking together. Elazar Guzman has possession of the marijuana and is taking the possession charge. Vincent Beetle, no possession charge. Elazar, possession charge. I had no weed on me. All they got is that he was telling them I was smoking and driving. They didn't put that I was swerving in the lines. They put I was speeding, which I ended up paying the ticket. And here I am fucked because this kid wants to open his fucking mouth and snitch on me. When he could have just shut his fucking mouth, took his ticket for the weed, shut the fuck up, and we would have been on the road within minutes. The weed was unsmoked. It was still in a bag in his pocket. I mean, really fucked up, man. You know, and this kid's going to try to ask me for a ride back to court. And I still had to take care of him for the rest of the fucking weekend before he fucked me with that Bob Levy show. So where I come from, you're a snitch, Elazar. That's it. You're a snitch for life. You will be a snitch. You were family to me. I took you in as family when you were practically fucking homeless. Okay? I remember driving you to RTB to do a show that you weren't even on just so you could drink a pint of fucking beer. And you didn't tell me that, but I know that's what you were fucking doing. God only knows what else. Cocaine. I don't know. I don't fuck with that shit. But I know you do with all that psychedelics and all that shit. So don't be going on a podcast after I tell you you're a fucking snitch that I'm not going to say nothing about it. This was back in April, bro. Back in April. And here it is fucking Tuesday, February 4th. I wait 10 months. But you go May 1st, 2019 and do a podcast on the fucking Pizza Boys podcast because you look like you fucking make pizzas for a living. And now that's the number one fucking listen to podcast because they had no viewers before. And now anybody who searches me is going to find that. That you want to go on there and talk shit about me. You're a fucking snitch, bro. If I wasn't on probation, are you kidding me? Like, you do these things and tattletale and you get people in trouble where they have to go to community service. And they have to go to rehab for six weeks for marijuana until they could get a medical license, which costs thousands of dollars, by the way, especially to a comedian with no insurance. $3,000 on a lawyer, $2,500 in restitution, $600 in fees to the courts, $10,000 later, almost having to take a deal for a felony for an old case. Because of this arrest, until I started fighting it and took a deal and accepted the plea. Yes, I was dr- I was smoking and driving. Yes, I was doing that because you know why? I had to. I declined the blood test. And he's going to sit there and tell me that what he said didn't have any implication on why I was arrested. I got the paperwork, man. I'll post it. And you let the people decide and see what that's if that's really what it is. Because 10 months later, now I'm paying restitution. I'm almost done, bro. I'm going to be on probation for another fucking 10 months and I'm a free man. And you're not going to be able to hide from this forever because the bottom line is we took care of you like family. And when you let me take care of you like family like that and you come in and you work with me and we do good things like that together and you fuck me over. Well, I'm not like other people, man. I go and make sure that my shit's taken care of. Okay. And that's what this podcast is about is to let the people know who you really are. Because there are a lot of comedians that get in the car with you or give you a ride somewhere. You don't got a license, so I know that to be true. So the next time somebody hears this, whether they're a friend or you or not, just remember that I love you like a brother. And you sat there and told the police, knowing I got a little girl at home, you sleeping in the same house as the family that I take care of and help build a life for. 
whether I fail or not, here's the difference between me and you, Elzar. I could lose a million dollars in the comedy business. New comedians could come in and give me money for a show and it could fail. But I can get back on my two feet, take the little bit of integrity I have left, and build something to make sure I pay those people back. And that's something that I firmly believe I'm going to do. But people like you, people that snitch on their best friends, that's what they are forever. You're a fucking bitch. You're a snitch. And I swear to God, I better not see you once I'm off probation. That's the end of this podcast, folks. Thank you guys for listening to the third episode of the Come Town Podcast. My name's Vinny. Hopefully, as these things go on, we'll get some guests and we'll talk about different topics that maybe aren't so serious and we can get into some funny stories. But these are the kind of things that I need to get off my chest because, you know, you search my name and there's got to be 15, 20 podcasts of kids who have no following that I'm the number one podcast because they just want to badmouth me and bring on comedians who are going to badmouth me. And and I'll let anybody badmouth me without saying something, but if you're going to put my life and my freedom in jeopardy, I'm going to come for your neck. So Elazar Guzman, just know that it ain't over.